Hey, fintech friends. Hey Fintech friends, welcome to another episode of Hey Fintech friends. This is the podcast to find out all about what is happening in fintech, learn something and also listen to me have a friendly chat with this week's guest. So gonna run through the structure very quickly. First we're gonna go through the fintechionery, then the news, then we're gonna have a friendly chat with two guests, James, the global head of risk and identity solutions from Visa and Parley, chief product officer at Alloy. Then we'll go through a snippet of signals and then events. This week's fintechionery is DAO. This isn't actually something we discuss in this episode with my guests, but this morning I was explaining to my sister what a DAO was and it kind of put me in the position of the question that I ask my guests a lot. I ask them like, if you were talking to your mum and you're trying to explain this or your non-fintech friend, how do you explain what you do? With a lot of these terminologies, they are quite simple terminologies. So I was kind of in the hot seat explaining to my sister what a DAO was in simple languages, in simple language, which it's actually not that difficult. But we're going to go with the Investopia Fintechionery. So according to Investopia, a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization, is an emerging form of legal structure that has no central governing body and whose members share a common goal to act in the best interest of an entity. Popularized through cryptocurrency, enthusiasm and blockchain technologies, DAOs are used to make decisions in a bottom-up management approach. Key takeaways is there's no central authority of DAOs. Instead, power is distributed across token holders who collectively cast votes. All votes and activity through the DAO are posted on the blockchain, making all actions of users publicly viewable. This week in FinTech. Okay, the news. Product launches. The banks are innovating this week. MasterCard launched an open banking application to provide account owner verification and identity insights for users opening a new digital financial service account. City launched an embedded payment suite for online merchants to collect payments with lines of credit and instalment loans at point of sale. A group of Australian banks launched the Fraud Reporting Exchange, a digital platform to report fraudulent activity en route to other banks. And in other news, Mastercard, PayPal and Robinhood are all bucking the trend and launching a new crypto functionality. Meanwhile, US bank executives, including the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, were grilled by Congress over risk management practices and bank failures in the last few months. Blackstone is in conversation with many of the same banks about stepping in as a private credit provider. Bangladesh and India plan to trade in their own currencies rather than the US dollar due to Bangladesh's lack of foreign reserves. Meanwhile, the BRICS countries are discussing their own common currency to challenge the US dollar. The UK Treasury Committee has advocated regulating crypto like gambling. And more banks are partnering with fintechs. Bank of America opened a new fintech accelerator and Visa added seven new startups to its Asia-specific accelerator. Experian launched a new fintech-focused data-sharing network to help tackle fraud. Ethiopia's central bank issued the country's first ever mobile money license. 
And the Payment Choice Alliance in the UK is pushing back against the country's divide to create a cashless economy. WorldCoin, the deservedly controversial product by Sam Altman that looks to trade universal basic income for a registered database of everyone's biometric information, globally launched its digital wallet for identity. Vault launched its Canadian corporate and spend management accounting and banking solution to help businesses out of stealth. Paysend rolled out a cross-border solution to US small businesses and Comply Advantage launched an AI-powered anti-fraud solution. Revenue-based financial platform Catcase launched a buy now, pay later service for SaaS companies and buy now, pay later solution Zip launched an intake to pay platform. Block launched block transfers to instantly send money between accounts in Nigeria. And in other news, again, it emerged that Brex tried to acquire some of Silicon Valley Bank's business when it was seized by the FDIC in March. Revolut started offering loans in France. Peach Finance opened in Canada. And crypto exchange Bitpanda will invest 10 million in AI because why not? And the bad news. The Bank of England rejected Revolut's application for banking license due to multiple accounting irregularities. Lender Solo Funds settled with the state of California and Washington DC over the effective APRs of its fee-based revenue. The founders of India's Zest Money has resigned weeks after a planned acquisition of Phone P fell through. It was revealed that Jump Trading did a secret deal to prop up the value of Terra's failed USD stablecoin. And Zeps is laying off 26% of its staff. Stash laid off 10% of its workforce and N26 is cutting 76 jobs. That's This Week in Fintech. All right, besties, we've got two guests today. So James is the global head of risk and identity solutions for Visa, a role that he was asked to take on in April, stepping from previous leading strategy and operations, where he was redefining the strategy and operating model for one of Visa's fastest growing businesses. Partnering with an amazing, talented team and an incredible portfolio of customers to redefine the role Visa plays, helping to make more payments simple, safe and fast. However, wherever and whoever you pay. And our second guest, Parley Edson Wang, is the Chief Product Officer at Alloy, the identity platform for fraud and risk decisions. She has spent the last 15 years working in product and fintech, driven by the opportunity to help solve interesting problems without obvious answers. Prior to Alloy, she led the product at Bread and was part of the product team at OnDeck. She also received her BA in International Relations from Stanford University in 2008 and a Master's in Business Administration from Harvard School in 2013. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining me on Hey Fintech Friends. So glad we've managed to talk. Um, where are you guys signing in from? Uh, we were just talking about that. I'm, I'm based in Park City, Utah. Um, Alloy's headquartered in New York, so I spend a fair bit of time in both places. And I'm... Uh, I'm- in uh, northern suburbs of Dallas. So oh, I spend wow. a little bit of time here at the moment. I'm on the road a lot, but yeah, here this week. Okay, that's great. I mean, obviously, James, because you had a British accent, I was like, oh, maybe he's also in the UK and it's 8pm for him too. But that's nice. Um, you guys <laughs> are both American. So it'll be good to kind of just start from like, just knowing a bit about you guys, um, knowing a bit about Alloy, knowing a bit about Visa and, and essentially, not Visa, but like, 
essentially knowing how you guys work together. Pearly, do you want to tell me a little bit about you and how you started working at Alloy, like your story? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm the chief product officer at Alloy. Alloy is an identity risk platform that focuses on fraud credit and compliance risk solutions for folks building financial products. And I've been at Alloy for about a year. Um, I joined actually from an Alloy client at at Bread um, and uh, that went through an acquisition um, and as a, a very happy client and, and fan of the Alloy product as a user, I knew the team and, and was excited to, to come on board and help really build out the product vision and product strategy and team. What else would be helpful for me to tell you about? Um, I guess if I was speaking to your non-fintech friends or if, if you were speaking to your mom or <laughs> yeah, just someone who's not working every day in the sort of like ecosystem of fintech, how would you explain Alloy and like what you're doing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's actually one we, we think a lot about because um, it's easy to get, you know, pretty jargony, pretty fast in risk identity type spaces. Um, the, the way that I talk about it is if you think about what makes it harder to build really good financial products than it is to build lots of other, you know, really good products, it's risk. So if you think about building, for example, a new note-taking app, creating a new note, writing some things in your note, um, letting people see your note, there's not a lot of risk in that. There's not a lot that's going to go wrong. But when you think about building financial products, everything you do in a financial product has a lot of risk behind it. It has compliance risk. You might be interacting with a criminal um, and then, you know, you're on the hook for fines. Um, if you get that wrong, you might be enabling a fraudster that's there to steal your money or that's there to steal the money of your customers. Um, you know, that that is also very risky. If you're building credit products, um, you are giving away money that is very easy to give away and a lot harder to get back. So on all of those fronts, really anything you do in a financial product has you know pretty high risk of going wrong. And what Alloy does is to sit behind the scenes and make decisions about how risky everything is, how risky making a payment is, how risky letting a new person onto your platform is. And, you know, by looking at that fraud risk, that credit risk and that compliance risk in the background, we let creators of financial products build really good front end experiences that don't feel clunky and like you have to jump through a thousand hoops in order to access the financial products you want. Um, and um, on the back end, you're, you know, every bit as safe, if not safer than you would be if you were creating a lot more friction. Um, so that, that's how I think about and, and talk about the the Alloy products to friends and family. You no, know, there's so much to unpack there because you're kind of, you're kind of part of every element of the kind of transaction from the onboarding to the monitoring yeah. to the underwriting to I guess the consumer as well 100%. um I have so many questions about that but before I kind of continue because I feel like right now as well with automation this is like what everybody's talking about everyone's like oh my god AI is going to take all our jobs um so, so there's so much there when it comes to like automating all these elements of like the financial like what, what we do but before I kind of delve like deeper into that because I think both of you will have insight from two different perspectives James I'm curious what do you do and, and how does Visa come into this whole you know ecosystem yeah so uh, I lead the risk and identity solutions uh, business for Visa so 
my my 11 year old asked me the other week actually what do you really do dad and so i said my team basically look after the products that help us or help our customers to move money safely so whenever someone uses a, a visa card or a you know uh, does a transaction using visa um we are building the products and the the data models and you know using technology to try and keep those safe and to make sure that the bad guys don't get their hands on you know money that they shouldn't be able to touch so that's it very simply and, and prior to this i was uh with london stock exchange and refinitive and leading uh, their risk intelligence and digital identity and fraud products and then prior to that i was with uh, amex and paypal so coming to visa and getting to look at risk and identity gave me a chance to bring together the experience i had previously in payments which i've always loved and the risk and identity and fraud space. So it was like the dream opportunity and uh, been here about six or seven months now and haven't looked back ever since because it's a, it's a problem that's just getting more and more complex and the criminals are getting access to the same technology that we all have access to, except they don't have to sit in boardrooms and you know write business cases. They just get their hands on it. So uh, yeah, it's a really interesting space and uh, one that, that keeps all of us, I think uh, Alloy and Visa and many other companies very, very busy at the moment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and I, I think you're right there. It's like, I remember I used to be in kind of credit risk underwriting and you do spend a lot of time, like I remember, you know, as a graduate spending a lot of time Googling these things, trying to work it out. And I remember even back then thinking like, this feels like it should be automated. Like it's not because I'm doing the work, but in your head, you think that there's like a system where where you where all these things can be automated. But at the same time, like you said, with all these elements being automated, a lot of people do have access to it. And so, how do you kind of make sure that it doesn't sit in the the wrong hands? And how does Visa and Alloy like intersect with each other? Like, how do you guys work with each other? Yeah, sure. I I think that we work on a lot of of interesting kind of complementary aspects of of this broad risk space, um, which, you know, makes chatting with each other and and potentially working together really exciting. Um, I, I think about, you know, Alloy really sitting on the back end across kind of full, uh, identity risk management um, for a wide variety of financial products. Um, And, you know, many, many of our clients uh, work with Visa as well for a lot of their, you know, transactions and and processing. And so, um, you know, lots of interesting overlaps in the space for sure. Yeah. And just to add to that, I mean, Visa, we have quite a structured fintech partners program of which Aloe is part of that. And I think to the point that Barry made, you know, no one company can help to solve these problems. And so for us, you know, working with partners like Alloy for our joint customers and trying to help them solve uh, challenges that they're dealing with every day. I think I love the example you gave, Parley, which is, you know, when you talked about people building these new products and, you know, everyone's trying to solve for these frictionless experiences and you know, embedded finance is a big theme. The reality mm-hmm. is, though, that whenever you try and do that and, you know, you draw that up on a whiteboard, the thing that can bring that down is going to be, you know, risk and it's going to be fraud and it's going to be, you know, identity theft. And so for us, when I think about the opportunity for Visa, um, you know, it is working with partners like Alloy to make sure that we're helping protect our customers and the customers of our customers when you think about the banks as well. So there's, there's just so much opportunity for partnership in this area. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about safe and seamless. How do you make sure that, you know, account openings, transacting, updating your PII, adding a new user to your account. How do you make sure that that is a seamless experience with the quality of, 
you know, front end ease that, that customers now expect because that's what they are used to in their digital products. But how do you do that and enable that seamless customer experience without risking the safety of the customer on the other side? Um, and, you know, the bar for that is is high and getting higher. And, and I, I absolutely love your point. There, there's no one solution. This isn't a, you know, oh, well, if I only had one particular model, all of a sudden risk goes away. You solve it with a very broad, open amalgamation of different data sources, different models, different training sets, different step-up interactions, you know, different insights, different lengths of relationship with end customers. And, and there is so much interesting signal um, around any particular identity, around that risk. But we only get it and, and really get at that whole picture when we work together to get our arms around identity. And then when we do that, when we work together really effectively, that's how we ultimately can unlock those, those seamless front-end digital experiences that everybody wants to be delivering. We just don't want to do it at the expense of our customers' well-being. I have a, I have a question, actually, on identity and fraud. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you guys can think about this, but... You know, equally, there's such a massive movement. And I guess like within the sort of like decentralized space where, you know, there's a movement, you know, with crypto not to have people's identity and for people to be able to have transactions without necessarily having to go through all these loops and jumps to move money. How does how do you kind of strike the right balance between um you know, identity and making sure there's no fraud and all these things that need to happen, but also kind of respecting or, or or going with that same movement of like decentralization or do you think the industry is like pushing back from that now i think that's a i'd say that's a huge topic i mean you could talk we could talk for hours about about that alone i mean when i think about it um identity is core to solving and to helping to mitigate fraud and you know you're never going to eliminate fraud but ability to resolve identity and to be confident about who you're transacting with, particularly when you think about digital transaction. And that could be anything. That could be somebody opening a bank account. That could be someone opening a crypto account. That could be somebody making an account change on a you know relationship they've had for 10 years. All of those I think of as transactions and all of those involve, you know, doing a good job of being able to resolve identity. And you know what I mean by that is just having the the necessary level of confidence that it is the person that's doing that transaction that should be doing it. So I think, you know, that's fundamentally number one. I think in the fintech space, we work in a heavily regulated industry where many of the participants, particularly on the banking side and on the on the payment side, have obligations to regulators and uh, to really know who they're dealing with. So whether that comes down to KYC, whether that comes down to having a level of, of step up around them doing a transaction, I think those are all important and enforced. I think there's lots of different ways you can solve for that when you think about identity. We, we've been spending a lot of time internally talking about the difference between what we're thinking of as probabilistic identity versus true deterministic, which means really, can you get to a, a set of signals that give you a high degree of confidence that this, actually, this is actually James on his iPad at home performing that transaction as opposed to it being somebody else? So we think about that as, as probabilistic and that can be good enough for uh, you know a payment transaction to eliminate fraud, but when you think about uh, opening an account, you know that's where you need to be much more deterministic. And so there's obviously been a lot of investment in technologies in that space. You know, Alloy has built a great business helping their clients to onboard successfully and to allow them to avail of different types of you know identity verification 
capabilities, whether it's document authentication or using you know data sources. So I think identity is a really hot topic. I think it's it's very clear that if you think about it in the right way, you can you can use those services and you can protect customers and, and consumers. And you can build those in a privacy-preserving way. And that doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, a decentralized, self-sovereign identity that somebody uses or that sits on blockchain. I think there's other ways, many other ways to do it where you can do it in a privacy-preserving way but still get to the to the right result. So I think it's a, it's a fascinating topic and, you know, one we could, I'm sure, spend a lot of time on. I'm sure Paralee's got some thoughts on it as well. Yeah, I know, Rick. Really well said, and and I would agree with with all the points you were making, James. Um, I think what I would add in is I I do think there can be kind of this perception of a false dichotomy. Either you're going to verify your identity and you're going to have this clunky, antiquated experience where maybe you're you know answering an out of wallet question about who managed your student loans 15 years ago, which I don't know, but anybody can look up on the internet. You know that being equated with well, you know if I if I have to have my real identity, then I'm going to have this clunky, bad user experience. And I, I truly don't think that's the dichotomy that exists anymore. And I think that that's what companies like Alloy and Visa working together can prevent. As, as you were saying, James, you know, preserving privacy at the same time, creating these seamless experiences that invite people into the financial ecosystem. And at the same time, meeting your, you know, compliance regulations around identity, but also deeply understanding identity in order to protect the people using your platform and, and using your products, I think those all can come together incredibly well um, when companies like Alloy and Visa are, are working together to create, you know, great signal and, and great understanding. No, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like you you guys hit the nail on the head. Like what you're really trying to do is, is strike that right balance where it's not that you're you've got these archaic systems, but it's also not that you're um, you're you're not. Um, complying with regulations and things of that nature, which are obviously very important. I wanted to ask if just on this topic, if either of you had like a fintech fact or stat that you've seen recently that you thought was quite interesting on this particular message. I actually saw one identity, which just struck me last week because we were talking a lot about synthetic identity. And there was a story late last week in one of the online newspapers. And they were saying, I think they'd worked out there was something like 2.5 million active uh, accounts which have been set up with synthetic identities and that's their conservative estimate in the US you know when I think about that that's just that's just such a challenge for the banks to try and sift out and to try and catch that before those accounts go bad and you know those criminals have a have a a bust out fraud or whatever they decide to do Uh, and those can be very large and they can be very expensive and they are they're very very patient criminals when they when they set those up that just caught my attention because and i think it was underestimated as well and that was just in the u.s yeah super interesting and and appropriately scary i think something that i've been thinking a lot about um so alloy recently conducted a fraud survey um of risk leaders um across the u.s and we were I think a, a kind of a note on, on the identity question that really stuck out to me from our fraud survey um, was how unclear and how hard it is for fintechs, for banks to really understand the type of fraud that they're experiencing. I, you know, when you speak to a lot of, of risk leaders, they they understand often the payment vector where they're losing money, right? So, you know, they're seeing a lot of fraud through the ACH rails, through real-time payments, through, you know, app payments in the UK, you know, a, a lot of um, kind of 
vectors of money coming out, but not, it's a lot harder to understand the root identity risk that let somebody in in the first place. Um, and so things can look like first party fraud, but actually be synthetic identities. You may think it's third party fraud, but it's actually an account takeover scenario or vice versa. So that, um, you know, that inability or that challenge in diagnosing kind of the root cause of, um, you know, the identity risk that got in in the first place that ultimately opened up um, a weakness down chain for somebody to be able to extract money from your system, you know, through uh, fraudulent activities. You know, that's a really hard problem. And and that's something that has, has really stuck with me since that survey and one we've been thinking a lot about as part of our, our product strategy at Alloy. How, how do we really help our clients understand not just that money is being taken, but who is taking the money and, and how they, you know, created an identity that enabled that in the first place? Yeah, I think that's such a massive, massive question that you guys are solving. I think I, I read it in, um, I read somewhere that um, over, at least in England, but I can I can imagine, at least in the UK, but I can imagine it's global, during the pandemic, fraud, like online fraud doubled. I mean, it was already bad, but you can imagine like with everyone sitting at home that these things became such a massive um, uh, just became easier, but also since then it, it never went down. So, it, so when things opened up, it's only only increased because there's so many different ways to do it. Like you said, it's become so dynamic in how people do fraud or commit fraud or even like the new types of innovation in fraud. So it's such a massive question that you guys are solving together. I want to kind of move on to, because I, I wanted to have t- time to ask you guys questions that the previous guest asked, because there's two of you, I'm going to ask you separate questions. Um, <laughs> James, I want to know, um, what's your spiciest take on fintech today? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. I, I would say, I think we're in a, we're going through a period of time where I think the whole fintech space is changing quite quickly because i think if i just take what you mentioned about what we saw through the pandemic we did see fraud you know increase significantly there was a lot more opportunity i think for the fraudsters to take advantage of the fact that lots of institutions and companies were having to roll out different ways for their customers to interact with them it just it just created a, a surface area they could attack very quickly i think that resulted in a lot of new companies trying to get into the space to solve those challenges there was a lot of investment flows going into those businesses you also had you know, crypto boom and and also so there's just this actually for the for this space the fintech space it drove a lot of growth and i think we've come out of that or we've, and you've started to see some of that normalize you've seen some of the the growth actually drop off. Um, you've seen a lot of you know, venture money and, and private equity money going go into those companies. And I think it's creating some tension in the system. Um, and I think because the market dynamics have shifted, it's also given the incumbents an opportunity to have a look at what they need to do. And you're starting to see them investing a lot more now into what I would describe as more fintech solutions to make sure that they can service the the changing demands of their customers. So I, I just think we're a really interesting what I think of as kind of a transition point. And I think the next six to 12 months in, in our fintech defined broadly in the fintech space, I think it's just going to be really interesting to see what happens and the fallout of some of those changes uh, that we're seeing in the marketplace. I'm curious, Pradley, do you agree with that take? Like, cause that's, that's a massive, like looking into the, the future, what happens? Like, do you agree with what James, James's take on the future of this industry? I, I, 
I absolutely do. Um, you know, I, I think as you look at the the stats around, you know, just how explosive uh, the growth in fraud has been, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about fraud startups and how, you know, the same way that you think about a, a venture backed, you know, trying to do good fintech, getting funded and, and investing in their own growth and getting better at their craft. Uh, you know, a lot of, you know, fraudsters got a lot of money um, during, you know, from different COVID programs, et cetera. And, and rather than take that money and move to a beach house somewhere, they reinvested it in getting better at fraud. And that is, you know, terrifying and means that we're seeing a faster rate of change than I think we've we've ever really seen in the fraud landscape. At the same time, exactly as James was saying, that there were a lot of new kind of vectors into financial products, new ways of accessing them that created, you know, new new risk points. Um, so that's certainly something, you know, we we think a lot about and and really are are thinking about how do we solve for it. What what I will say would be kind of my add-on is, you know, we talk a lot about the cost of fraud, but I think often when we speak about the cost of fraud, we miss actually what the largest cost of fraud is, which is good customers who get turned down, turned away, or don't get access to something. At the end of the day, we can all, you know, end fraud by just not transacting, not opening new accounts, you know, kind of shutting down growth in, in the financial sector. Um, and that's very, very bad for our customers. Our customers need access to more and better financial products. And so as, you know, as expensive and as costly as fraud is in terms of, you know, ultimate impact to the bottom line of, of banks and fintechs, in terms of fraud losses, it's, it's even more expensive in terms of loss of good business. Um, and when you think about what that does to our ability to invite and welcome people into the financial system, um, that has, has real ripple effects. So, you know, I, I always am trying to weigh in my mind bo- both of those kind of critical ways that that fraud costs us. I was just going to say, I think that's such a such an important point as well. We we talk a lot to customers about appropriate friction. And uh, there was mm-hmm. a there was a stat that our risk team came up with. And it was something it was somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of customers if they have a genuine transaction disrupted. So if it's been identified as potential fraud and they get impacted um, by that, then they will not pull out that same product again for the next transaction. So if, if you're a bank and you're thinking about your customer and having that that payment credential as top of wallet, you really can't afford to inadvertently disrupt it when you think it might be frauded and it's not. So it's a, it's a really interesting balance and it's very difficult to get right. Absolutely. And think how, how embarrassing it is for that customer, right? They're, you know, they're, they're not, you know, not, not pulling the card out again in, in many cases because they're mad at the card as much as it is because they're, you know, embarrassed and worried for themselves. And, you know, that's, that's a, a great way to, you know, marginalize folks who, you know, might look riskier under, under certain um, measures, et cetera. So it's, it is so, so important that we find a healthy balance there um, that, that keeps everybody safe, but introduces to your point, appropriate friction and, and not inappropriate. Yeah. I was going to say, actually, you, you both actually said it anyway, but I think when you take it to like the human element of fraud, a lot of the times frauds are not even reported because people are so embarrassed about how big they are or, or that they were scammed or that they they fell for it when you know you're not meant to fall for any of these things so like i think i think you've hit the nail on the head that isolation that people have when you start to think about the actual human being behind all these frauds it becomes way more sensitive and like you said it stops people from really trusting those financial systems and and yeah it stops financial inclusion which i guess 
to a lot of extent is the mission of fintech so yeah i agree i want to ask you both another question just because i feel like you both answered that question which is great <laughs> so we'll start with probably this time um okay t- turning the nail on the head turning the nail on the head um what market or thing are you most excited about from a fintech perspective or, or a non-fintech perspective, actually? I don't know that it's a, a market as much of an opportunity, but as I'm sure, you know, everybody in, in tech across the world is is thinking about, you know, a, a lot of, you know, interest and engagement and, you know, how LLMs, how things like ChatGPT may, may play out in the financial sector. Um, I think, you know, when you think about highly regulated industries, LLMs, that role, do they actually have the training data they need? Will they ever get access to that? You know, what are the problems that might be more peripheral that can be well solved? What are the core problems that that may not be able to? How do you think about kind of privacy fitting into that? Um, you know, I, I can't say that I have answers, um, but if I think about kind of trends, themes, you know, what is top of mind, um, thinking through really, you know, how, how that will play out in highly regulated spaces where, you know, consumer privacy is incredibly important and training sets are limited um, is very top of mind for me and, and a question that, you know, we're, we're asking as a product team. Yeah, I, I think I think I think you that's such a major issue right now. What about you, James? Do you think that's kind of um, is that also what you're very excited about? Yeah, I think there's a lot. I mean, one of the things that I think about quite a lot at the moment is as um, more and more companies are, are coming up with slicker and slicker experiences for their customers. So you can think about embedded finance from that perspective or, you know, how these new new startups are starting to use technology to come up with great consumer experiences. With that, there's a lot of what I just, you know, think of as kind of payments disappearing into the background. You, you enroll a payment credential somewhere in the sign up, but then it becomes an almost non-event and commerce just happens. That's fantastic for the consumer. Uh, and it's fantastic for those companies as well. But one of the things that I always think about is when you've been using a credit card, as an example, for a long time, you know that you don't leave your credit card lying around. You know that you don't give people the credit card number. Like there's things that are inherently in your head about protecting payments. When the payment experience disappears into the background, consumers aren't necessarily thinking about what they have to do. So I think it puts a lot of pressure on us to make sure that a, a you know a network or at a payment ecosystem level, we're thinking about that and we're keeping the consumer front of mind. We're keeping the merchants front of mind and making sure that somehow we insert trust and, and safety and security as people build out those those new slick experiences. So it keeps me awake. It, it makes me. I'm very excited about what people are doing in this space, but definitely something that we think about to try and make sure that people are protected when when maybe consumers aren't necessarily thinking about it and they shouldn't be thinking about it. <laughs> I love that. You took a problem, which is, well, like a massive problem, and you're like excited about solving the issue. <laughs> you're not like, oh, you're not like, oh, this is like um, a relatively fun thing that's happening. You're like, this is an issue and I'm going to solve it. That's great. <laughs> It is, and I think I think it comes back to the point you made. I mean, we always talk about fraud and we talk about financial crime, but I always I always come back to the fact that this is there's a human impact to this. So, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's people that are getting taken advantage of, and it's typically the most vulnerable. Um, and they need they need people like us and Alloy and all of these other companies thinking about this stuff so that they don't have to. So there is a 
there's an obligation to that, but it does get you fired up. And I know that our team at Visa get very fired up about this as well because we, we just we think about it all the time. <laughs> it's what we do from morning to night. And James, I'm sure you, you, you'd agree, but uh, you don't really get into identity risk because you don't like big, hard, you know, fuzzy, amorphous problems. You know, there there's much easier problems out there. Um, and, you know, these are the, the gnarly hard ones that when we solve really can, you know, drive multiplicative impacts, but also you're going to be solving them for the rest of your life because as soon as you come up with solutions, there's going to be, you know, new iterations on risk. So uh, it keeps us on our toes and engaged. No, that makes a lot of sense. You don't, if you choose this industry that you you both have decided to kind of work in, you know exactly what the kind of problems you're going to be solving and what's going to keep you up at night. Uh, but I get what you mean because I think with fintech becoming well, yeah, because because it's so seamless in a lot of ways, especially like in the UK, for instance, like with um, Apple Pay and like just tap, like you know, just tapping your card for the bus and stuff. In a lot of ways, you you can become quite complacent when it comes to a lot of these like like issues, like where you leave your credit cards. Like I wouldn't necessarily leave my credit card lying around, but you can become quite complacent with how you just tap everywhere and like was anything done on your card. So it is it is top of mind um, because I think. Yeah, it as much as the technology is good, we also become like very complacent with how we use it. But yeah, anyways, I want to ask you guys um, some questions for our quick fire round. This is kind of the last bit of um, the episode. Um, so I'm going to ask you some questions and they don't have anything to do with fintech. Are you guys ready? Who wants to start? I can go first. Describe yourself in five words. <laughs> Curious, empathetic, high ownership, mom of two. That's probably more than five words. But short, right? Yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> um, James, what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, I don't have one. That would be a really bad thing for everybody in the karaoke, but I'm just trying to think what it would be. Um, it would be something cheesy and old that my kids would cringe about if I sang it. I'll, I'll think of a song, but yeah, definitely something a bit older and that my kids would cringe about. Having just come back from a company retreat, I can say mine was Skater Boy. Oh, that's a good one. That's good. We want to hit... Okay, now you have to... I'm joking. You don't have to sing. Believe me. <laughs> no. Nobody wants to hear it, but it was fun. Pray, would you rather be forced to dance all day every day until you get a perfect score on Dancing with the Stars or be forced to bake cakes until you get a perfect score on British Bake Off? Ooh, definitely baking. Okay, yeah. James, what was your nickname growing up? It was Surfing Murphy. Surfing Murphy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did used to surf back in the day, so it was appropriate. But yeah, that was my uh, that was my one at school. Fair enough. And Freddie, would you rather go without shampoo for the rest of your life, or go without toothpaste? Oh, that's brutal. I guess without shampoo, although my scalp is now tingling. Yeah, you could just shave your hair. And it would be. Yeah, I feel like there are alternatives. <laughs> James, would you rather be able to control animals or be able to see into the future? I'll see into the future for sure. Okay. Pretty, if you were a fruit, what fruit would you be? Mango. Why Why mango, actually? Like a perfectly ripe mango, I think is just the best thing in the entire world. I don't think there's anything more delicious you could possibly eat. Fair enough. Actually, I just came back from Gambia and it was mango season. Oh, so like, jealous. <laughs> they were literally just like, everyone was just like getting them from the trees and everyone was just like, it's mango season, just take a mango. It's great. <laughs> it's really good. James, would you rather have to write everything you say out by hand or or only be able to speak in rhymes? <laughs> I think only be able to speak in rhymes. My writing's terrible. It would take a long time, but yeah. 
Speaking in rhymes. It'd be so annoying. <laughs> Uh, Tony, would you rather have to always wear heavy boots or never be able to wear shoes? Mm. Probably always wear heavy boots. It's, it's not too far off from that in winter in Utah, so I'd just be extending it a few months. Okay. Okay, yeah, fair. That, that makes sense. And last but not least, James, would you rather be extremely allergic to your favorite food or forced to eat your least favorite food once a week? I think I'd have to say I'd rather be allergic to my favorite food. I could yeah. find something else. I could find something else that I'd like. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You just have your. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um. Just uh, one last question. You both can answer it. What do you think I should ask the next friend on the show or friends? I like knowing what people think is the most important problem to solve. And James. I would ask them what's the one fintech story we haven't yet seen that we're going to see within the next 12 months those are both really good questions i just wrote them down so i will be asking them but yeah i think we've got to the end of the episode so thank you both so much for joining me on haven tech friends this has been awesome i feel like i've learned a lot about fraud and identity and just how the the sort of back end of, of all these things like how you intersect but also i guess the human element of where it comes from um, so it's been really, really interesting. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. That was fun. Yes, thanks so much. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Signals is our subscriber only reads. So I'm going to read you a snippet of one of our latest articles. But to read the full article, please subscribe to the This Week in Fintech newsletter. Fintech joins the front lines of the war in Ukraine, written by Charlie Graham. Just before the dawn, on February 24th, 2022, Russian troops poured into the north, east and south of Ukraine, unravelling a world order that has governed since the fall of the Soviet Union. As Western leaders squabbled over how to pick up the pieces of the capitalist and global society they had stitched together over the last 30 years, massive lines appeared at ATMs and bank branches across Ukraine, capital flooded out of the country and bond prices and exchange rates plummeted. The alarm bells were ringing and Ukraine's banking system tethered on the brink of collapse. This collapse wouldn't have just stolen wealth. It would have handed Putin the keys to Ukraine, starved much of the country's population and denied Ukraine the ability to flee to safety. Functioning payment rails, liquidity systems and capital market are fundamental not only to the battlefield's success, but also to a stable economy and to the definition of a nation-state. And in this era of fintech and decentralisation, upholding these key functions is just not in a government's mandate. It falls to the wider array of crypto exchanges, neobanks and payment apps and other services that have sprung up in the last decade. State actors, while critical, are no longer the only show in town. Borderless, privatised financial services, when backed by inclusive regulation, are the best levers for democratisation and economic stability. To read the rest of this amazing article, please subscribe to the This Week in Fintech newsletter. Okay, so two events to announce. We've got the This Week in Fintech LA Tech Week kickoff, which will be on the 6th of June. 
And then we also have the FinTech Picnic, which is on the 22nd of July in New York.